I tell you, I have been so incredibly encouraged in recent days by all of the incredible servants that God has put in this church. With the way that people have stepped up, the way that people are leading, the way that people are taking on new adventures of walking with Christ. Um, how many of you guys know the movie Up? You guys seen the movie Up? There's a, an explorer in the movie Up whose catchphrase is, adventure is out there. And one of the things that I think happens for us as believers, especially for those who have grown up in church, those who've been walking with Jesus for a while, in those moments, what we find out is we can let life get entirely too routine. And we forget that following God is the greatest adventure in all of human history. We're going to see that over the next few weeks as we look at a man who was a very unique servant of God. We're looking back in the book of Acts chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 6. Last week, as we've been going through the series on Acts, by the way, there may be somebody who's watching us online or somebody who's here this morning, and you're new to church, and so all of this is very different for you. We want you to know we're so glad that you're here. There is nowhere else on earth we would rather you be. The reason we come is not because we just want to mark off some kind of box or you know, because this is just kind of what we do on Sundays. We come because we want to encourage each other. We want to worship the Lord, which means we're going to lift him up. We're going to sing about how great he is. We're going to talk a little bit about that idea of God's glory. And, and as we do that, we also want to be challenged to grow more like him, to live more like him. So we look at God's word where he's told us about himself, where he's told us about life, and we spend some time explaining and, and looking at what that means for us today. So today what we're looking at is what does it look like for us to be faithful servants of God? Now, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been seeing this is what the early church did shortly after Jesus ascended back to heaven and after Jesus' death for us, his burial and his resurrection, Jesus went back to heaven and now the apostles have been going about sharing about who God is. They've been talking about what Jesus has done and God's been drawing people to himself in really big ways. By the thousands, people have been making this decision to follow Jesus. So here we're seeing a shift in the book. We've been talking primarily about a couple of guys whose names are Peter and John. They're two of the main apostles, and we've been seeing what God's been doing through this group of men called the apostles, especially Peter and John. Now, last week we started this transition because we said that there was a problem in the early church that they needed some men to step up and help with, and God appointed seven men to be able to help lead the church in a unique way in ministering to the needs of the widows. We looked at that last week and said that that's the beginning of the office that we refer to now as the office of deacon, where people were coming alongside and serving and meeting needs. So today, and actually for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at both uh, two men who the Bible described as some of those early deacons. The first guy's name is Stephen, and he's who we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. And then we'll get to another guy named Philip. Now, if you're, uh, we'll get there eventually and explain it more, but I can think we can make a good case that the Philip it's talking about with the Ethiopian eunuch and doing ministry in Samaria um, is actually Philip the deacon, not Philip the apostle. So we'll explain more of that when we get closer, okay? But for today, we're looking at this guy named Stephen. Stephen has some unique honors in all of church history. One, he is the first guy that we see in the book of Acts who is not an apostle who gets to preach. That's a really cool honor. He's the first non-apostle that's doing the kind of ministry that Peter and John were doing. And he also has another honor, and that is Stephen gets to be the first one to sacrifice his life for the cause of Christ. 
He is the first martyr, the first one to die for the cause of Jesus. So now, as we're looking at this, what we're going to do is, his story is so big, it actually takes up over a chapter and a half. So what we're going to do is divide this into two different weeks. And so this is the marks of a servant, part one. If you and I are going to emulate guys like Stephen, guys who were just a regular old deacon, if you will, guys who serve the Lord faithfully in big ways, if you and I are going to model our lives after men like this, what should we do? How does that look? Well, that's what we're going to see over the next two chapters in the next two weeks. We're examining the end of Stephen's life. Now, if you look at chapter 6, verse 5, uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have put the Bibles back out in the pews, and so there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you. If you're not sure where Acts is, you can open up. There is a table of contents in the front, and you can flip over to where Acts is. And the chapters are the big numbers. Once you get inside the book of Acts, the verses are the little ones, okay? So Acts chapter 6 is where we're picking up in verse 5. Now, it says this. This proposal, talking about the idea of setting aside some men, um, for the ministry of, or excuse me, for the ministry to the widows and all. This proposal pleased the whole company of men, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch. Okay, so we've seen Stephen set aside as one of those guys. Now we're going to go back and pick up now down in verse eight. Now Stephen, full of grace and power was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, I want you to focus through here the marks of Stephen's character that we see through this. How did he represent God? So we see that he was full of grace, full of power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition, however, arose from some of the members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. We'll talk about that in just a second, okay? But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom by the spirit and the spirit by which he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes. So they came, seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish Supreme Court. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, as we go through this this morning, what I want you to see, we're going to talk more next week about the accusations that were leveled against Stephen, what they were saying that he had done. What I want you to focus on today is the marks of his character. Next week, we're going to talk about the accusations and how Stephen did such a great job defending the faith. I wanted to um, I almost did it all in one message this week, but I really wanted us to take some time to dive into that. So we're going to look at that next week. So this week, we're focusing on the character of this guy named Stephen, all right? As we're looking through this, let's kind of explain a few of the things that you're seeing that are a little bit different, all right? Verse 9 especially might be kind of confusing. Synagogues were places where the Jews would get together and study the scriptures. They weren't like the temple where they'd go and offer sacrifices. These were like the place where they would gather weekly to have Bible studies. Now, there may be more than one synagogue represented here because of the way they're described. It it says that there are people from different areas, from different countries, with different backgrounds. And usually, kind of like we do in this day, you would start a, a synagogue with people who were like you. So folks from Alexandria would get in one synagogue. Folks from Cilicia would get in one synagogue. Folks who were freedmen would get in one synagogue. So what you're seeing is he's going from synagogue to synagogue arguing and defending the faith and talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made and everything that they were looking at. 
By the way, side note, um, we're going to be introduced later in Stephen's story next week to a guy named Saul. Saul is the one most commonly referred to as the Apostle Paul. By the way, God didn't change his name from Saul to Paul. He simply was Saul when he was around Greek, or excuse me, Jewish folks. He became known as Paul when he was around Greek folks because that was just kind of the difference between John and Juan, okay? Just kind of a difference in dialect. So, so Saul is introduced here. Well, Saul is from a city named Tarsus. Do you know where Tarsus is? No, of course not, because none of us... I, we barely know where like Topeka, Kansas is, much less our ancient Near Eastern geography, right? So um, Cilicia actually is the place where Tarsus is. So as you're reading through and it says that Stephen is going into the synagogues and he's arguing with men from Cilicia, it's possible that the young apostle Paul, who is not saved yet, who's not walking with Jesus yet, he may have been in that debate with Stephen. That may be kind of where we get introduced to him and where this starts kicking off. So as we're going through and explaining all this, uh, you see that they're, they're trying to debate with him and they can't get anything by him. His wisdom is so strong. The Holy Spirit's working through him in such a way they can't win the debate. So what do you do? If you can't beat them, cheat them, right? They lie. They, 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 yeah, if you can't beat them, join them is how you should do it. But instead, they're digging their heels in. So they say, well, we can't really come up with anything. So we're gonna make up some lies about some things that Stephen has said. Now, again, next week we'll look at those more directly, but that's what happens. They make up some lies. They stir up trouble. Stephen gets arrested, and then he's standing before the Sanhedrin with his face shining like an angel. Now, we'll talk about that when we get there in a minute. So what do we see out of this man's story that you and I can copy? Because we know that he's doing unique signs and wonders that God only gave uh, in this kind of way during the early church, so that's not really us. So what is it that we can copy? Well, I want to give you at least two marks this week, and then we'll look at some additional marks next week of what it looks like to be a faithful servant. Because this is what we all need to be, guys. This is what we should all be striving for. This is part of that adventure of going on with God and seeing him do great things. The first aspect, the first mark of a faithful servant is that a faithful servant is going to demonstrate the character of God. Demonstrate the character of God. Now, when we talk about character here, we're not talking like a character in a movie. We're talking, although it's kind of a good way of thinking about it, right? If you think about an actor who plays a character, what is it that they do? Well, they take on their mannerisms, right? They, they talk like the person. They may change their voice. They change the way they walk. They change the way they, they speak about things. They, they take on the, the actions that they would do, right? So this actor may pretend like he's a job as a Wall Street executive. And so he's going to pretend to do these things. And he's going to emulate the kind of person that the person he's playing is. When we say that we're representing and demonstrating the character of God, we're talking about God's nature, who God is, how God acts, what God does. And so we're going to be seeing that Stephen, along with our goal, is to be able to demonstrate that character, to look like Jesus in the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we respond, the way that we treat others. And one of the things that jumps out right away is that he was clearly a man who demonstrated that kind of character. In fact, Luke's going to give us four different ways that that happens. First, we see that he's a man who's characterized by wisdom. Wisdom is the first aspect of the character of God that he demonstrates here. Stephen had been appointed to serve in a leadership role in the church. And if you remember going back to chapter 6, verse 3, it said, Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. Now, wisdom was something that they were looking for in these men who would serve the church in the role of a deacon. And As a faithful servant, we saw there in verse 10, like we read earlier, he was demonstrating the wisdom of God. 
In fact, they said they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. So if you and I are going to be a faithful servant of God, we need to demonstrate godly wisdom. Now, sometimes we wrestle because we'll, we'll conflate the idea of wisdom and knowledge. How many of you have known people who were so unbelievably intelligent that they could not navigate their way out of a paper bag? Okay, um, how many of you are those people? Okay, um, it's said that Thomas Edison was so brilliant that his mind was thinking on such a high level that he often forgot the way to his house. There was one time he got off of a train at the train station to go home, and he actually had to send a telegraph to his wife to get her to come get him because he could not remember the way home. Some of you have known some folks like that. They know a whole lot of facts, but when it comes down to actual practical MacGyver kind of living, you know, the everyday stuff, they have absolutely no idea how to operate. Wisdom is the idea of being able to know how to apply the knowledge at the right time in the right way for the right things, okay? So a person who is wise is a person who doesn't just know facts in their head, but somebody who actually knows how to live. Because see, some of you guys have met folks who may not have even graduated out of high school, but they can look under the hood of your car and they can figure out immediately what's wrong. And they, they can diagnose it, they can take care of it, or uh, you know, I had a, a grandfather who was a lineman for the telephone company for his whole career. And, you know, he didn't have a whole lot of book learning. I don't think he'd ever been to college, you know, things like that. But Grenady Hall loved you. And he was a wise man when it came down to asking him about what was going on in life and the way that he treated his family and things like that. He had a lot of wisdom in that. He knew how to take the knowledge that he had and apply it at the right time in the right way to the right situations. If you and I are going to be God-following people who are marked by the character of God, we have to be marked by wisdom. Now, there's one kind of wisdom that's, you know, knowing how to tune a carburetor on a weed eater. Um, There's another kind of wisdom, though, that the Bible talks about that is what is defined as godly wisdom. Here's the markers that the Bible gives us of what godly wisdom looks like. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without pretense. Now, I'll leave that up for a second. Let's look at what this is. When we talk about Stephen being a man who was full of wisdom, that meant in the way that he acted, the way he made decisions, the way that he spoke, the way that he treated other people, even those who opposed him, was with moral purity. He was peace-loving. He was gentle. Well, now, when you read the sermon that he preaches, it doesn't seem gentle. Actually, he's very respectful until he gets to the point where he has to call them out on it, which is the most loving, gentle thing he can do. He's compliant. He's full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. Godly wisdom is what it is. It's not about putting on airs, putting on a face. So here's my question. As you look through this list, Would those who know you best say that they could come to you to get that kind of wisdom? Would they say that, yeah, you know, Sean, if Sean gives me advice, I know that it's going to be godly. I know it's pure. I know that it's it's morally right. You know, when when I come to this guy or this gal for for advice, I know that they're going to really try to maintain peace wherever they can. I mean, you ever know folks who just like to blow things up, right? 
You know, it's kind of like to, to hit the hornet's nest and see what happens. That's not God-honoring wisdom. Marked by gentleness, marked by compliance, being full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering. Isn't it interesting, by the way, the, the juxtaposition here of compliant and yet unwavering? They're easy to get along with, but they're not going to compromise. There's no pretense. They are who they are. I've known a handful of people who are this way. That when you talk to them, they are who they are, and you know when you walk away that you're going to receive godly wisdom that they're going to share. If you and I are going to be faithful for servants for Christ, especially in a hostile time, we need to develop this kind of wisdom. Is, is that what your kids would say is true of you? Is that what your spouse would say or your roommate, your coworkers? Would they say that these are true of you? Now, if you're looking at that list going, uh, probably not. Then let me give you some idea of where to start. See, the Bible, this is what I love about it. It's so immensely practical that it gives us a very clear indication of where to start. If you and I are going to develop godly wisdom, here's how we do it. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So if you want to become wise like Stephen or like those to whom you would want people to look up to, if you want this kind of wisdom, it starts by fearing the Lord. Now, guys, in our world, we don't like to think about this as fear. You know, sometimes I've heard folks refer to it as as kind of the respect you show around a firearm. You know, if you've ever been around a firearm and you've been around responsible firearm owners, you know that there is a certain level of respect. You don't just wave it around everywhere. You don't just toss it at somebody. You know, there's certain ways you handle a firearm because you recognize that it has incredible power and you want to be wise with that. However, I will say, I don't think that gets close enough. Often in the, in the world right now, we want to focus on the love of God, and we should. We absolutely should. But here's the thing that you find when you look through the Bible over and over and over again. When people saw more of God, it broke them. I want to give you an example. It's a little bit of a longer passage, so we're, it's going to be on the screen. Read it through it with me. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, the prophet Isaiah, saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Are you getting a picture? Like, use your imagination to look at what this looks like. He's seeing into the throne room of heaven. He sees God's robe is so majestic that it wraps around and the hem of his robe fills the temple. There's these crazy angelic creatures that are surrounding him with six wings. With two, they're flying. With two, they're covering their faces. With two, they're covering their feet. And as they fly around him, it says this. They call to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Guys, listen. As these angels are calling back and forth to one another, holy, 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 holy. They're doing it so loudly that the doors are shaking on the temple. You see this picture? This is our God. Then Isaiah said, woe is me, 
for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Do you want to be a person who's wise? Take a good, hard look at who God is. And as you see who God is, let that produce in you a broken heart that says, woe is me, I'm ruined. Other translations render this, I'm undone, I'm coming unraveled because God is so good and I am so not. He goes on to say, then one of the seraphim flew to me and his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, hey, by the way, you think that was a fun process? He said, touch my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah saw God as who he was. What that produced in him was a fear of the Lord that said, God is God in heaven. I am on earth. I have no right to be in this throne room. I have no right in and of myself to be able to see God like he is. And it caused him to fall on his face and say, I am undone. That's where wisdom begins. Stephen had seen who God was. Now, he didn't get to see into the throne room of heaven necessarily up until the very end. But he knew who God was. He knew that Jesus had loved him so much to die in his place and be raised from the dead so that he could have new life. And he never got over that fact. So that led him then to be gentle and peaceable and pure. And all of the things that we saw were that wisdom. So much so that no matter how hard people tried to oppose what he said, they couldn't find anything wrong with it. Because his life was marked by this wisdom. If you and I are going to follow Christ, we must be marked by the same. The Right understanding should shape us then if we understand who God is and who we are, it shapes how we look at the world, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the relationships we pursue, and everything else. How are you doing with this? When people look at your life, would they be able to say, that's a man who reflects the character of God in wisdom? Well, in case you're good on that one, let's keep moving. It says that Stephen was also not just a man of wisdom, he was also a man of faith. Look again back at verse five. It says that this proposal pleased the whole company. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Man, what it would be like if God was able to describe everybody in our church family as a people of faith. Now, when we talk about this, this is why he was willing to go toe-to-toe with the leaders in these synagogues and why he goes toe-to-toe with the leaders of the Sanhedrin because he believed that God would do what God would do. He believed that God was actually able to accomplish what he said. That's what faith is. In fact, our theme verse as a church talks about this. Our theme verse as a church is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. We'll put it back up on the screen. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and what? A sincere faith. A faith that says God can do the impossible, period, end. Are you that way? Our aim as a church is that we would love God and others with a sincere faith that believes he's able to transform people. He's able to save. He's able to change the world through the work that he does in and through us. Do you actually believe that? 
I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. To quote current vernacular, the last year has got some of you shook, right? It has seemed like the world has gone absolutely haywire. There's been moments where it feels like, in, it, whether it's on the meta level, on like the stuff happening internationally and globally and locally, or if it's you and your life, you just feel like God must have taken his hands off the wheel because it sure seems like things are out of control. Are you honest enough to admit that you've probably had moments like that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. If you and I are going to be faithful servants of God, though, as we go through those challenges, we cannot expect to live a God-honoring life if we're not willing to say, God, I don't know how, I don't know what you're going to do, I don't know when you're going to do it, but I have faith that you will. I trust that you are still in control, even though I don't see it, I don't understand it, I don't like what you're doing. Those things are all okay to say to God, by the way. You find Moses saying stuff like that to God. And by the way, it's not like God doesn't know it, right? It's not like you look at God and say, God, I'm really upset about this. And he goes, really? I had no idea. God, I'm really frustrated. Oh, gosh, I thought you were doing okay. No, God knows. So my question is, are you willing to be filled with faith? It says, boy, I have no idea how you're going to make this work. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And let me pull up something real quick. As I'm going through, I wanted to share this with you as you're thinking about what faith looks like in the life of, of what you're going through. I know that there are a number of adults in our church family who struggle with some level of depression and anxiety. Brad Hambrick, who is a pastoral counselor at Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, has this statement that he trains folks to look at when they're struggling with depression and anxiety. I am experiencing depression or anxiety. I wonder what it means and what I'll learn about God, myself, and others in the process of responding to this in a healthy way. I'm feeling really anxious about this. I wonder what God's going to do. See, that's a response of faith. It's not denying the fact that you feel anxious about this or you're depressed in this situation. It's acknowledging that and saying, I wonder what God wants to teach me. I wonder what God's gonna do and accomplish in this. I wonder what he's gonna do in me. I wonder what he's, how he's gonna use this and redeem this. That's looking at life through the eyes of faith that says that God does exist. He really is in charge and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So is that how you look at life? Or is this where you say, you know what? I'm depressed again. Forget it. I'm done. I must not have enough faith to get over this because I just still keep falling back into it. Or are you willing to look at those things and say, you know what? I wonder what God wants to do in this. I wonder how God's going to take this and use this. That's looking at it through the eyes of faith. Stephen demonstrated this so strongly that everybody recognized it, which is why they appointed him to be a servant of the church. And he shows it all through this section, even up to his death. So not only was he wise, he also was filled with faith. He just demonstrated God's wisdom. He demonstrated the character of God through faith. He demonstrated it by being full of grace. Full of grace. Now, if you're not used to the way that we talk about things in church, when you hear grace, what you think of is a ballerina, right? 
The only time we use grace outside of church really is to talk about somebody who's got graceful movements, right? They're full of poise and grace. We don't really use it the way the Bible uses the word grace. But grace for us in the church is a super important word. We talk about God's grace as God giving us what we don't deserve. One Bible dictionary defines it as undeserved acceptance and love received from another. Yeah, we're not to that one yet. We'll get there. Thank you for being on top of it, Jamie. Undeserved love and acceptance, usually from a superior to somebody lower than them. So here's what happened. Stephen recognized that God had showed him grace. There's a bunch of ways that God shows us grace. One, I want everybody to do this with me. Go, okay, if you just completed that cycle, God gave you the grace to stay alive. You gotta understand that that even your very ability to breathe is God's grace. But specifically, we talk about God's grace in Scripture as the fact that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners and doing our own thing, Jesus died in our place and was raised from the dead to give us his life that we don't deserve. That's God giving us grace. So here's what's incredible, and we'll see this all the way through Stephen to the very moment of his death. He shows that same kind of grace even to those who are throwing rocks at him to kill him. Do you you get that? We'll get to the end of the story, and we haven't talked about it this morning, but the way that they put Stephen to death was they picked up big rocks and they chucked chucked them at him until he died, okay? Now, I have a side gig weed eating every once in a while for my brother. We weeded it on Friday. We don't use guards on our weed eater because we feel like dying like real men, okay? If you've ever weed eaten, you can look at my arm and it's full of little red pock marks where we keep throwing up little tiny rocks. And you know what? That hurts like the dickens, especially if it hits you like right on the bone of your finger or something like that. It really smarts when you throw up a piece of gravel into you with a weed eater. But you know what? I cannot imagine people taking baseball-sized rocks and larger and throwing them at me intentionally trying to kill me. And yet, Stephen is so full of grace that he prays for their forgiveness as they're doing it. Sometimes we talk about the idea of if you were, if your life was a full cup of coffee, full all the way to the brim, what happens when, what spills out when you get bumped? right? See, if I have a cup of coffee and you bump it, coffee's going to slosh out. If I am full of the grace of God, what happens when you bump me is I'm going to slosh out grace. Let me cut you off as we pull out of the parking lot today. What sloshes out? Let your kid be defiant and disobedient. Let your spouse come back at you with that biting tongue that only comes from a decade of being with each other. They can cut you to the quick in an instant like nobody else can. Your boss completely disregard what you've done. Your professor throw out everything that you worked on all semester long. What happens then? John MacArthur described Stephen this way. 
Because Stephen trusted God and walked in the fullness of the Spirit, he was given the grace to face persecution, even death. Neither fear nor hatred controlled him, only trust and submission. He could be gracious even to the point of death because of his confident trust in God and his resignation to serve the divine purpose. Stephen was fully submissive, showing the same grace that he had been given. Do you want to be like Stephen? Well, MacArthur goes on to say this. The only way a believer can live like Stephen is by dying to his sinful self. Those busy looking out for their own interests will have little time or inclination to abandon themselves and experience the grace Stephen experienced. The Christian life is a call to die, to die to self to die to what I want, what I think is best, the way I want to spend my money, the way I want to spend my time, the way I want to fulfill this pleasure or this relationship or whatever. Instead, it's a call to surrender to the God who's shown me grace. We see wisdom. We see faith. We see grace. We also see power. Look at verse 8 again. Stephen was full of grace and full of power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. This power can only come from the Holy Spirit who equipped him to do incredible miracles, speak with incredible wisdom, and as we'll see at the end of his life, to see an incredible thing. It wasn't because Stephen had worked himself up to be some kind of unique super Christian or you know, that he had somehow you know, unlocked this skill level or whatever it may be. It was just like God had told his people centuries before these events. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 God speaking to the prophet Zechariah to tell something to a guy named Zerubbabel, and we could get into what God's saying there, but here's what he says, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. The only way that you and I will have the strength to obey, to stand, to do what God's called us to do, is not because we've trained really hard to do it, although you should discipline yourself to walk in godliness. The only way you're able to discipline yourself is for God to give you the power to do it. Like, do you understand? You have no ability in and of yourself, literally. You didn't make you. You didn't put you where you were born. You didn't get you the teachers that shaped you, the parents that shaped you, the friends who shaped you. You have like almost no real responsibility for any of that. Now, yeah, you can choose who you surround yourself with, but honestly, A lot of life and who you are is out of your control. So everything you have is a gift from God. I remember that there was a moment that will embarrass Sarah. She was about less than 18 months old. And we got one of those little plastic, little red flyer wagons that has the little canopy and all because it was our first kid. And we thought that you needed those kind of things to keep your kids safe from everything. Uh, I'll never forget her sitting in the floor with me I was putting the axles on to put the wheels on and you had to tap the little cap onto the end of it. And I remember her sitting there pointing to where it was supposed to go. She was helping, right? If you ever watched kids help, uh, you know, Miss Donna did a great job of having two great little helpers yesterday following her around, helping clean baseboards all around the church. I imagine she probably had to go back over a lot of it. Because when kids help you, They don't really have the ability to do anything. Sarah couldn't pick up the hammer and drive the little cap onto the end of the axle to keep the wheel on. But you know what? It was a joy for me to do it and have her there. It's still one of my favorite memories. 
God is a thousand, is an infinitely better God, dad than I am. Guys, you and I can't hardly even point at what's supposed to be done. We can't pick up the hammer. We can't drive it on. But our heavenly father loves to hold the hand, hold the hammer, drive it on, and then say, good job, buddy. You did a great job with that. And it's not in some kind of condescending way. It's because his love is so unfathomable that it just spills out to where he draws us to himself and wants us involved in what he's doing and then gives us the power to do it and then says, great job. Isn't that incredible? Stephen demonstrated that power up till the very moment of his death. Are you willing to do the same? Like, think about all this. It all sounds really good. Yeah, I want to be a wise person that people can talk to. I want to have faith and believe God. I I, I want to be filled with grace, and I I want to have the power of God working through me. Yeah, look at the situations. He had to keep a church from splitting by making sure that everybody was taken care of. Then, after that, he had to stand up over and over and over again and defend the faith to people who said, you're wrong, you're a liar, to the point that they lied about him to get him killed. That's what serving God looks like. Wisdom matters in the dark, in the difficult days. Faith is, comes into play when things are hard. Grace is important when people are jerks. Power is necessary when life is hard. So if you want to demonstrate the character of God, you've got to be ready to go in the hard places doing the hard things that's really uncomfortable. As he demonstrated the character of God, though, there's one other thing that you notice that's a mark of this faithful servant, and that is that he displays the glory of God. He displays the glory of God. This verse is really interesting. Go back and read with me chapter 6, verse 15. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, Jamie, I don't know. Can we pull up that angel picture? How many of you, when you think of angels, this is what comes to mind, right? In our culture, we have this idea of these little cherubs with these little cute little cheeks. Uh, By the way, I've never noticed until I noticed how cross-eyed people in the ancient world must have been. I never have figured that out. Um, But this is our picture of angels so often, right? So when it says that Stephen's face looked like the face of an angel, is that what it meant? Like it was all clean and no zits and uh, clear-complected and little rosy cheeks? Now, what do you find when Scripture defines angels? Every time an angel shows up, what's the first thing he says? Don't be afraid. Don't freak out. Now, I would be unnerved if that all of a sudden showed up in my living room. Um, that, that would be unnerving. But when we look at the role that angels play throughout Scripture, they are protectors. They are the army of God. They are, as we saw the seraphim in Isaiah 6, that are flying around the throne. They're they're these fearsome creatures. But they reflect the glory of God. That's what was on Stephen's face that day. His face was glowing with the glory of God. The glory of God is described this way. A Holman Bible Dictionary says, it is the weighty importance and shining majesty that accompanies God's presence. The weighty importance 
and the shining majesty that accompany God's presence. When they arrested Stephen on trumped-up charges, just like they did with Jesus, by the way, almost the exact same accusations. They bring him before the Sanhedrin, and what they see in him is not anger, it is not rage, it is not a man who's out of control, it is not fear, it is the glory of God, the weight of God in his life, the majesty of God in his life. That's what they see. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to necessarily make this be how it works for you, but we've seen other places in Scripture where this happens. Exodus tells us that whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. After he came out, he would tell the Israelites what had been commanded, and the Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. Moses got to get close enough to God that his face glowed. Like literally, physically, not like a sunburn, like his face glowed with the glory of God so much so that it freaked everybody out and they made him wear a veil. That's what we see on Stephen's face. Here's what's incredible. When you get some time, I'd encourage you to read through 2 Corinthians 3 and see that God has given us a greater glory through his indwelling spirit than even Moses had. He sums it up with this statement. 2 Corinthians 3, with 3.18, talking about Moses' veil. He says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who's the spirit. Now, that's a crazy verse. It's got a lot to unpack there. But what you see is as we take a good look at who God is, as we develop that fear of the Lord that leads us to godly wisdom, as we're walking in that, we begin to reflect the weight and glory of God in our lives. What do people think about God when they think about you? What do people think about the God you claim to serve when they think about you. See, Stephen, as a man full of the Spirit, was literally reflecting the glory of God on his face. We may not literally have that glory of God on our face, but as you demonstrate his character, you're displaying God's glory to the world, and that world doesn't understand who God is and what he's done or what he can do, so your life is giving God the weight that he deserves. You're you're recognizing and acknowledging who he is, We can't live out God's character on our own, so when we obey, we glorify God by showing that he's rescued us and enabled us to live for him. He displayed the character of God and thereby reflected his glory. So let's kind of go back to that idea of what sloshes out when you get bumped. Looking at what God has said in his word, looking at what God's doing, how do you handle it when life gets tough? Does your life reflect that you serve the God of the universe who is full of weighty glory and majestic presence? Does your life demonstrate that in the way you respond? If so, then it should be showing itself through wisdom that's God-honoring, faith that believes that God can do the impossible, grace that responds kindly and shows undeserved love and acceptance to those who hate you, who accuse you, who even assault you. And it's marked by the power of God. You may never raise the dead. You may never heal someone who's born a leper. You may, or not born lame, rather. You weren't not born with leprosy. 
You may never heal someone like Stephen did. You may never have the signs and wonders and miracles, but at the same time, God can work in and through your life in ways that make everybody stand back and say, I have no idea what's going on. It must be God. So again, take some moment here. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. This is how Stephen reflected the glory of God. He demonstrated his character, and that led him to display the glory of God. Is that true of you? If you're here this morning and there's never been that time in your life where you've transferred your trust from what Jesus has done to you, or for you, rather, and trusted in him as your Savior and Lord, invited him and surrendered to him as he's drawing you to himself, if you've never surrendered and said, God, I can't do this on my own, then that's where you start. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, recognizing that he is God who's in heaven, who's holy and who's just and who's righteous, and you are so not. Have you ever surrendered to him? If not, in just a moment, we're gonna have an invitation and I'm gonna invite you to come down here and talk to me and say, Sean, I need to make that decision to follow Jesus. If you're watching online, you don't have to come down here. You you can, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, whatever you're watching this on, you can right where you are, you can stop and say, God, I need you. I need to surrender. I need to transfer my trust. I need to focus on following you. I I need you to work through me. I can't do this on my own. I need you to forgive me so you can give me wisdom and grace, faith, power. I want to show your glory. If you've made that decision, though, and you know you follow Jesus, does your life look like it? Not from 11 to 12, 15 on Sunday mornings, but the rest of the week. When you're in class, when you're in your dorm, when you're in your apartment, when it's just you in front of a computer screen. We joke about it, but when you get cut off in traffic, when you get that news from the doctor, when you have that painful fallout with a friend, do you just demonstrate the wisdom, the grace, faith, power of God to show his glory wherever you are? If not, is there one of those that you need to focus on this week? God, I've been making foolish choices. I need you to give me wisdom. God, I've been doubting you in this particular area, and I need you to give me faith. God, I've had a really hard time responding well to this person, and I need you to give me grace. God, you know what I'm facing, and I need you to give me power and strength to glorify you. Which one of those areas do you need to focus on this week? Surrender that to him today. I'm gonna pray for us, and I'm gonna give you just a moment with your head bowed and your eyes closed to do business with God. I'll be down front if you wanna talk to me. If not, you do business where you are, and then I'll close this in prayer in just a moment. Father, we are so grateful for you and grateful for all you have done. We're grateful for servants like Stephen who've modeled for us what it looks like to demonstrate your character wherever we are. So God, help us to commit to this next step, whether that's surrendering to you as Savior and Lord for the very first time, or whether that's committing one of these areas to you so that you would be glorified, you would be exalted, and you'd be lifted up. 
Speak to us this morning and draw us to yourself. Father, we thank you that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. We thank you that you're a God who is more gracious than we could ever be. We thank you that you're a God who is infinitely wise and who knows exactly what he's doing. We thank you for your power. We confess today we are a people who need to grow in our faith. So God, would you work in us this week to help us to see you, to trust you, to walk with you, to know your power, to know your goodness, to know your grace, to show that to the world around us. God, there are people we're encountering every day who are lost and separated from you and living lives that are worthless in light of eternity. We have hope, so God, help us to point people to that. Use us like you used Stephen to stand boldly and defend the faith and and to stand for you, for your name and your glory, no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes. And we'll exalt you. We look forward to the day when we're all going to be standing around your throne declaring with the seraphim that you are holy. When we're going to look back on all of these things and see that you've been working and your plan is greater than anything we could ever imagine. So we strive to live like that today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.